Uh, Romans 12, verses 3 through 6 is what we're going to look at this morning. Just the first phrase in, in verse 6. We'll get on to the, to the gifts here later. I, I mentioned uh, John Wooden this morning. Uh, he died in 1910. He was born in 1910. Or excuse me, he was born in 1910. He died in 2010, just a few months shy of his 100th birthday. Uh, his wife had died, I believe, some 15 years or so earlier. And uh, John had written a letter to his wife every single day of his life before he went to bed. And even after she passed away, he would write a letter to her and stick it under his pillow. Uh, he was a, a, an amazing man. Uh, what, what we, when we talked about how he, would, how he built teams um, and the concept in our culture of comparing ourselves to other people. And when we come to the church... That idea of teamwork is there, but comparing ourselves to other people is not. Perspective changes. Because God views us as members of a body. And in a body relationship, we don't compete against each other. We cooperate. We serve each other. Each of us has a different function, but our differences don't make anyone better or worse than another. And the reason is that whatever our gift, our function contributes to, all of us receive the benefit of that contribution. contribution. And so each of us is necessary. And uh, if you were here last week and and, and missed the message on Romans 12, 1 and 2, I encourage you to to listen to it on our website because there are key ingredients in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that set up the rest of the chapter. And then, as I mentioned last week, there are key ingredients in the whole book of Romans that set up the basis for which Paul says, I exhort you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, or I urge or plead for you on the basis of the mercies of God. And so if we're going to understand the rest of uh, of Romans chapter 12, you have to understand God's amazing mercy to you. This book is about God's glory in the gospel. And the gospel that has been unleashed in the life of God's people that Paul has spent the last 11 chapters on, rescuing those that embrace Christ from the catastrophe of sin and its penalty, as God the righteous judge declares the believer righteous, the judge of all the earth, the almighty judge of all the earth, declares those who embrace Christ Righteous. And He securely protects them in hope for deliverance from the day that God's wrath will be poured out full and finally on sin. And Romans 1-11 through has a lot to say about that. But rescuing from the final penalty of sin is not all that the Gospel does. That's why Paul writes Romans 6-8. through Specifically, it liberates the believer from the power of sin now. You see, <clears throat> there's a concept out there that, uh, that some folks believe that you can come to Jesus for the deliverance of the final penalty of your sin and belief and be saved without acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord to be obeyed as well. In other words, that the commands of the gospel are just simply a second step you take after you are saved and you believe. But that misses the point of the gospel and skews it. And here's what I want you to understand. 
The commands of a transformed life is our response to the gospel. The gospel has two sides. What theologians will say, the indicative side of the gospel, or what we could put in simple terms, what God has done for us, what He has accomplished for us. And the other side is the imperative side of the gospel. What we are commanded or what we are to, 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 to be to Him as a purchased possession. And they're two sides of the same coin of the one gospel. They're not two different stages. And if you don't understand that, your sanctification will go askew. And you'll go back to religion rather than grace provision. You see, our response to the indicative, what God has done for us in Christ, what He has provided for us, our response to God's gracious provision is to be continuous, not an additional add-on stage. Christ is Savior and Lord. Not one first and then the other later. He is Savior and Lord. Doctrine and life in accordance with sound doctrine is the theme that you'll see uh, over and over in the New Testament. Sometimes, and I've made this error uh, frequently, uh, is when I look at New Testament letters, I'll divide them into uh, two parts. Um, I'll divide them into the section on theology or doctrine, and then we get to the practical section, right? As if they're stages, But the way we really need to view the doctrine and commands of Christ are like hemispheres of the same globe. Think about it like this. In the letters that Paul writes, and the other uh, letters that Peter writes, and, and Jude, and others, and James, when we have the doctrine, the teachings of what God has done for us in those letters... It's like the sun shining on one part of the hemisphere of the globe. But the globe then rotates slowly. And then the sun shines on the other part of the globe. You have to have both or you have half a globe. But the sun shines on on each distinctive part there uh, in focus. And and, and in Romans chapter uh, 1 through 11, the sun has shone on that hemisphere of the globe of, of what God has done for us. But don't disconnect that from the other part of the globe, the other hemisphere. Because now in Romans 12, through the end of the book, the sun is shining on, on, the, on the practice. The conduct that lives out of what God has done. And there's not, a, there's not a division between the two. They flow. And we make a big mistake if we try to emphasize one without the other. We produced a carved out globe that wobbles very quickly out of orbit. So we need to see the commands that flow out of the transformed way of the new truth and doctrine as, as, uh, um, as, as, as the river that flows out of the spring. The spring of what God has done for us. You can't really separate the spring from a river or from a stream. They're, 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 they're both the, the water, but the spring is what propels it. And the river is the way of transforming life. And so, the will of God, we saw in Romans 12, 1 and 2, for every believer is holiness. 
It's to be able to present ourselves, our bodies, by the mercies of God, as a living sacrifice that is holy, that is acceptable in the God, which is in a reasonable service, or your spiritual worship, or your, your spiritual service. And verse 2, he shows how that, how that happens. Not being conformed to the world's way of thinking, but being transformed by God's way of thinking, the renewing of your mind in Scripture. For the purpose of proving or testing or displaying here by experience that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. So the will of God for each individual's holiness is the same. He wants all of us who have been saved to understand that He's not done with us yet. He wants to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's true for every single believer here. No exceptions whatsoever. But, the proving that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect will be displayed in a diversity of ways. And acts of spiritual worship. Through, as Paul will say in the rest of the chapter, through service of each one's gifts to the body. So the goal is the same. But the way that's displayed is different. One of the ushers pull that back door closed. It's blowing open. But in order for that to happen, the Holy Spirit, through Paul here, will tell us to assess ourselves. To assess ourselves. And our place within the community, the local church, and our ministry to it. And we're to see that the transforming of the mind and the character is seen, listen, is seen most clearly in our relationships to one another. Let me say that again. The transforming power of a renewed mind and not being conformed to the world is most clearly seen in our relationships in our church. Being transferred by God's grace into the new age, the new humanity, those descendants ultimately of, of Abraham, spiritual descendants of Abraham, who uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ has been made a blessing to. Being transferred to the new age means soberly assessing yourself to serve the church. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For I say, and again, there's, a, there's the um, correlation, that word for, on the basis of what he said in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here's what is, it again, to flow out of this, this truth, this doctrine. In Romans 12, 1 and 2. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Notice that he says... Um, To every man that is among you. Among. That's important. That word among is important. Um, he assumes that these people belong to each other. Right? That they're responsible for each other. That they're members of one another. That they have covenanted together for the well-being of each other. Being a people who have been formed by the word of God. By God's grace as a local church. That they have defined that, 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 if, that if there is a group that Paul can 
and say uh, every man among you, then that would also mean that there is also an outside group who is not among you, the unbelievers. And this is this is this is a, a related to to what Paul is saying here in an application, but. That's why not just attending a church, but putting yourself under its care of the members and leaders is so important. Being accountable to that that local body and leadership. The way we express this is is through official church membership. Uh, Hebrews 13.17, we were talking about this a little bit in in our Sunday school class, tells the individuals of the congregation to be under the oversight of the leaders of a church. And here's why in Hebrews 13, 17. He says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. He's talking specifically about the local congregation because he says, For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. So Hebrews 13.17 tells the congregation to be under the oversight of the leaders of a church because those leaders watch for the souls of those under their charge because those leaders will one day give an account for those under their charge to the chief pastor. And the under-shepherd, the pastors, want to give a good account with joy of the sheep under their oversight rather than a bad report. The writer of Hebrews is saying with grief because that's unprofitable for those people. But how can the pastor, given an account for the ones who come in the fold, eat the food but never join the flock and put themselves under the care of the flock and the shepherds? And if you think about it like this, if all you did uh, after high school was to show interest uh, in a specific girl, guys, and take her on a date, and take her on another date, Day after day, year after year after year, and not make the commitment to that girl, would there be something wrong with that relationship? I mean, you all would be like, come on, man, put a ring on her finger, right? Take the, take the step there. But that's really how many Americans treat the bride of Christ. Date after date after date, but no taking the leap of commitment that would not be love, would it? There is not an understanding in the New Testament of a disciple that is not under the accountability of a local church. In fact, there are warnings for those that are not engaging each other's lives and and, and connected and accountable in the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 3 and others. Belonging to a church and partnering with that local church and being under its accountability through membership is so important. And so when you join a gospel local church, what you're doing is uh, you're telling the leaders in congregation that you're placing yourself under their uh, covenant accountable care of that specific body. And you yourself are covenanting to partner with them. Because the heart of love asks this, does the church exist for me? Or do I exist for the church? And Paul's going to answer that question in Romans 12. Or another way to say it is, can I be functionally connected to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, if I'm not joined to the body, His church? 
And it's exciting and thrilling to me here uh, for our members meeting on Wednesday to be able to recommend to our members eight people who have come to the church and a desire to join our church in membership. That's exciting. And so I say that because Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12 verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, that's the context for this body life Paul's going to talk about here. Okay. This is a rich chapter. And the outworking of the love of Christ in His church in a local body that one has joined themselves to and, and commitment and accountability is what will flow out. He's going to craft that for us, what that looks like. You see, Ephesians 3 verses 8 through 10 teaches us that the church displays the wisdom of God to the watching universe. And in John chapter 15, Jesus says that the world will know we're His followers if we have love for one another. And so this love for one another, that is to be uh, a display of God's wisdom in His church, is what Paul's going to talk about in Romans chapter 12. So what's going to follow in Romans 12 is what the shape of that love for each other looks like. And the qualities that he's going to frame out for us are like the return address on an envelope. My kids love to go get the mail. I don't know why we only get junk mail and bills, but they love to get the mail. And Brooke loves to get the, make sure that she gets a new American Girl catalog. That's why she goes out there. Jace just goes out there to... Uh, you know, do something, I guess. <laughs> Change the scenery. But the qualities that Paul's going to frame are like a return address on an envelope. When you get a letter in the mail, I mean a real letter, alright? And you're wondering who it is before you open the envelope. You're going to look at the upper left-hand corner of the envelope and see the return address. It tells you who it came from. And so it is to be with us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are a living letter. God's people are a living letter. Who all men read. And our life as a church together, serving together one another in unity, is the return address for the curious onlooker. Who wonder where we came from. And why we are in their mailbox. So Romans 12, verses 3 through 21 here points the character and conduct of the church back to Christ, our union with Christ, the return address. So Paul's going to use that context to shape how we're to walk in newness of life that he talks about in chapter 6, verse 4, and how we're to present ourselves to God as those who are alive out of the dead, chapter 6, verse 13, to manifest to, to, to display by the Spirit the power of the Gospel in day-to-day life. And that's our introduction, and my next points are quick. But I want you to understand this this morning. By operating through His power, we can serve one another humbly in unity of purpose, diversity of function, and mutuality of interdependence. By operating through His power, 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. We can serve one another humbly in unity of purpose, diversity of function, and mutuality of interdependence. And I'll unpack what I mean by that. 
He says, For I say through the grace given unto me, the grace that he talks about in chapter 1, verse 5, his apostleship. Paul says, I'm coming to you by the grace of God, uh, who I have received apostleship. He's saying, I'm coming to you on the basis of God's authority. I'm not coming to give you good advice. I'm not coming to give you Rabbi Shaul's opinion. I'm coming to you from the mouth of God. This is how you are to be. Because of the gospel. And notice he says, to every man that is among you. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That, that, that idea of more highly than he ought to think is one word in the Greek. And if you were to literally translate it, it would be hyperthink. Hyperthink. Think a lot about yourself. Paul says, I want you to not think a whole lot about yourself in one specific way. And in another way, I do want you to think about yourself properly. Paul says, I want you to think soberly. Soberly. That idea, that word soberly, thinking soberly, is the idea of sensibly, sane, have a realistic estimation of yourself. Go uh, with me over to Philippians chapter 2. A a humility here is what he's talking about. And Paul will say it uh, very clearly um, in Philippians chapter 2, this this, um, not thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to think, but to think soberly. Here's what thinking soberly about yourself is. Philippians 2. Verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. So unity. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Okay, now here's thinking soberly. But in lowliness of mind, let, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. There's a selflessness there. There is a correct estimation of self. So Paul here is saying for that I don't want you to be proud. I want you to be humble. To think realistically. Assess yourself. Who you are in the light of God. That God has done so much for you in the gospel. Here's what He has done. Here's how now you are to respond. And he says, according, think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith or the quantity of faith that uh, each believer trusts uh, possesses. He talks about in chapter 14, verse 1, uh, the different, uh, those who could be weak in the faith and those who could be strong in the faith. The faith you have is a gift of grace to you. And so Paul is, is going to, going to he's, he's, the, the question is being begged here, why should I estimate myself in accord with my faith? And so that's why he writes verse 4. For, as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. What Paul here is saying is, uh, uh, we have many members in one body. There's unity of purpose. All members have not the same office or function. There's diversity in function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ. There's again the unity of one body. And every one members one of another. There's a mutuality needing each other. 
having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let me grab my remote here. So here's what, here's what Paul is saying to us through the Spirit of God. The gifts that God has given to us, the grace that He has poured out on our lives, cannot be attributed to our goodness. That's why it's grace. You see, Romans 12, 1 and 2 was a basis on the appeal on the mercies of God. What God has kept back from us, what we really deserve. Romans 12, 3 and on is an appeal by the grace of God, what He has given us in Christ. What Christ took for us that we deserved before, the mercies of God, that's how you present yourselves a living sacrifice. That's a response to that. And now, who we are to be in Christ is what He's provided in Christ to us. You see, verse 6 tells us, having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us. His graciousness. He's teaching us that all believers have gift. And we have them as an evidence of God's gracious provisional supply to strengthen His community. So here's what you need to understand, first of all. In order to operate through His power, to serve one another humbly in unity of purpose, diversity of function, and mutuality of interdependence, first of all, we need to go through the gate of faith. The gate of faith in His grace. The gate of faith in His grace. We need to go through that gate first, believing that this is true. That all that God has promised here is true. But in order to do that, we need to understand, first of all, the source for all that God wants to do in us. And the source is, first of all, we need grace. We need grace in order to be, as he has scripted out here, who we are to be. We need grace. But there's a stance that we're supposed to have. The stance is we grow in humility. We are to understand who we are. We are to have a correct estimation of ourselves. We're not to think too highly of ourselves. As Diotrephes in 3 John, he he wanted to have the preeminence among the church. And John writes to that church in 3 John and he says, can't have that. You know, sometimes we, we, we think that, that God's gifts are, are on shelves, one above another. And the taller we grow, the easier we can reach those gifts. But in actuality, God's gifts are on shelves, one beneath the other. And the lower we stoop, the more we get to serve. There's a stance here of humility. But thirdly, There's a singularity. There's a singularity. Paul is telling us that we're all one body, as we read in Scripture together this morning. There's a unity in purpose. We're all one. And what I find amazing in Ephesians 4, after Paul says in Ephesians 3, 8-10, the purpose of the church is to display the glory of God's wisdom, that we're thinking, we're probably thinking, wow, you know, what's he going to say now? And you know how God displays the glory of his wisdom in the church? Well, Ephesians 4, that falls on the heels of it. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. The vocation where you're called, what is that? To display the glory of God's wisdom of the world? Must be grand and awesome and amazing things, right? Verse 2, he says, with all lowliness of mind, 
and meekness with long suffering. That means there must be someone who would you would might be in your congregation who you would he would have to say you need to be long suffering toward them. And then he says forbearing one another in love, which means there must be a need for it. Which means that church body life isn't easy. There's a singularity. There's a unity in purpose. And then after that, he says, uh, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he talks about one faith, one body, one spirit, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all. We're all one body. It's like all the parts of a, of a bicycle. They're all different parts, but they all have one function, and that's to get the rider to a destination. Coming up next week, like the Super Bowl. I mean, the cornerback who, who, who intercepts the pass on defense from the quarterback and, you know, flaunts into the end zone, runs back a, a pick six, and does his dance in the end zone, forgets that it was the defensive lineman who put the pressure on the quarterback to throw that errant pass, right? There's one purpose. So there is singularity. Singularity. That unity only happens through humility. But also, because I couldn't come up with another S here, there is, uh, I was going to say an assortment, but that starts with an A. So I'm going to say sorting, okay? There's a sorting here. We're all different. Diversity and function. Different personalities. Different spiritual gifts. Different backgrounds. Different economic levels. Different ways of, of, of doing life. There's diversity in function. And Paul, we don't have time to look at it, but in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says we're all different. So there's so in this unity, Paul does not want to see uniformity. He doesn't want us all looking the same. Yeah, right. <laughs> Spiritually. There's a difference between uniformity and unity. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about how God is bringing uh, 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 people from all different backgrounds into one new man. And we'll see that what, what the diversity and function is next week here. But there's a sorting. We're all different. We all have a place, and it's just as val- valuable as the next person's place. And then... There is a synergy, a synergy, a synergism. Because Paul says we're all needed here. We're all needed. Look what he says in verse 5. So we, being many, there's our diversity, are one, there's our unity, body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. There's the mutual interdependence. We need each other. And the sum of the parts is greater uh, than, than what each part uh, individually contributing uh, is. Altogether, it produces something great and powerful. Um, Tristan, come on up here for a second. Yeah, you. So, so Tristan here, he plays on the Riverhawks, right? From Madonna uh, Valley Middle School. And his team um, won their playoff game. And so they're moving on to the next round of playoffs. And each person on that team has an important role, an important part on that role. Uh, now, Tristan played a good portion of the fourth quarter 
um, this this past week, and um, uh, and and it was all due to all of his his entire body working together. If his feet or toes decided they didn't want to work that day, he'd probably be sitting on the bench. <laughs> his hands were the ones that made the shot, that grabbed the rebounds, that got the steals. His legs were the ones that moved him around. His head and his eyes looking around all contributed to that one purpose. And they all had to work together. They all had to depend on each other. His hand had to depend on his eyes, etc. Because there is mutuality of interdependence. And that's how it is with the body of Christ. Without an arm, without an ear, there would be something lacking. And that's how it is with the church. It all works together. Everyone has to contribute. It can't be the 10% doing the work of the, of the, of the 100%. The other 90 just relying on them. We all have to work together. Thanks, Christian. That was your uh, weekly embarrassment. <laughs> Every junior high school kid needs a, a, a dose of that, right? But uh, uh, Charlie and I were, were, were talking. Um, in May, I had a really bad sinus infection. And you know how you have a cold. You can't smell anything. Well, that continued for a while. It finally dawned on me that my sense of smell was pretty much gone. And uh, Charlie said that that happened to him too. And so you don't realize how much you depend on your on your on your on your sense of smell. Like food does not taste the same. I can taste sweet, sour, you know, bitter, salty, but I can't taste flavors. And I miss that. And uh, it was in May that my parents came to visit, and we had lobster um, for my dad. And um, I was eating lobster, and it didn't even taste good, which is strange to me. Some of you don't like lobsters, so you're like, yeah, I'm like that anyway. But for, but for me, I, I couldn't even understand it. It was my favorite food, and now I couldn't even, uh, I couldn't even taste the flavor, but I could just taste the sweetness of it, and, the, and, and, and also brought out the bitterness. I could taste that for some reason, but I couldn't taste the flavor of the lobster. It's come back a little bit. Um, uh, my, my sense of smell, but it's, it's not there. But that one little part was lacking. And it made such a big difference in quality of life. And so if we understand that in humility, God is producing the singularity, the sorting, the synergism, we're one body, we're different, we're all needed, uh, uh, God's going to do great things with our congregation. So I'm going to close with this. How are then we to evaluate ourselves? We're to each focus on using our gifts. And that's what we're going to be talking about the next few weeks. Serving others. Because we find fulfillment not in comparing ourselves with others, but in being who God has gifted us to be to serve the body of Christ in ministry. And that's exciting. Because it's no longer me that's more important than my brother or sister, uh, or, or them more important than I. We're each important. And so when Paul says uh, earlier, don't think of yourselves too highly, we can easily go in the direction of hanging our heads and thinking we're nothing. It's true we're nothing. But in Christ we're everything. Because the opposite is also true here, that we're all important. In Christ's estimation. So when we understand this perspective on ourselves and our relationship with each other, you're released from jealousy. You can find fulfillment in being who God created you to be, rather than wanting to be like someone else. 
Your friendships aren't distorted by status. You're not odd by anyone. You're odd by God's grace and working in the life of another person. You don't look down on others. You can appreciate others for being themselves through Christ's power without feeling that they have to be um, different than they already are or, or just like you. And so if you take God's view of yourself and others as members with you in a new body where there is cooperation, not competition, that's a whole new way of relating in life of the church. It is unlike anything that the world knows. And that's the first key to building a righteous, loving community. To see ourselves and others as God does as valuable, contributing persons in a family of faith, the household of God, this local church.